Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I'm Randy, and my guest today is Megan Eisenberg. She's the CMO at Trip Actions. And if you know Megan, you'll know that any company would die to have her as their CMO. But even beyond that, anyone would be super excited just to have her as an advisor. And that's a big part of her career. And one we talk about today is not just being active in the company she's in, but getting stimulated and getting new ideas by participating in other companies. Now, if you look at her LinkedIn, you'll see she's advised over 25 different companies. And you may look at that and say, how do you really take something like that on? How do you do that when you're trying to balance your day job, your family, everything like that? Megan gives those tips. She talks about becoming more efficient and how she's gone about making that a big part of her career and her progression. Some great takeaways today, including ideas like how you leverage insights from VCs as you look for that next step. But ultimately, we start talking about what it's like to be a trip actions. I mean, imagine being able to pick any company as a CMO and choosing one in the last two years that revolves around the travel industry. What did that mean to her? How has she rallied her team, rallied their customers, and how are they going to come out of this stronger than ever? There's a great episode, really motivating. Here's my chat with Megan Eisenberg. Megan, thanks so much for joining. I'm excited to get updated on your career journey. You and I met like way back, I think in a hotel at some conference on the road. We're not doing that these days, but we're going to get back there. But you're in that travel industry. And and how did you find this opportunity? Yeah, you know, um, I joined Trip Actions about two years ago. I um, was at MongoDB prior as their CMO. How I choose opportunities in general is I look at addressable market. I look at the investors that are on there. I look at the team and their ability to execute. And then can I add value? I think there was an extra bit of uh, fun that came with trip actions because it's a very consumer felt product as you travel and a product that I use and would be using. So as a marketer, there's nothing better than getting to use the product you actually market. Uh, and, and it wasn't heavy infrastructure. And, and so it had, it's a B2B product that has a consumer edge and it travels fun. Who doesn't want to be out traveling right now? Absolutely. No, it's an interesting angle that, that you hit on there is just this reality that yes, it's a B2B play. But at the end of the day, it's not like MongoDB where we're maybe using it strictly in our work environment, even though many people build stuff on their own. This was something that would connect with that end user. Yes. Very much like DocuSign, right? The end signer and the end user or the real estate agent, you know, all of that. Absolutely. So, so let's hit on DocuSign, which you just brought up. You talked about finding product market fit, finding addressable market was that always a part of your career? Like, you know, at DocuSign, an amazing outcome, very disruptive. But did you realize that that's where you were headed when you joined there? Or when did this thesis that you now have of finding something that's going to disrupt and be big, you know, when did that start to be part of your personal mantra? For sure, I had no clue when I joined DocuSign, you know, 10 years ago or however long ago it was. You know, I had really good mentors like Byron Dieter 
uh, like Tom Riley that understood and you know good companies what the elements were. As I went up in my career, I started to learn more and more and see the patterns of successful companies. And I think who drove that home for me was actually Roloff over at Sequoia when they're trying to, you know, talk to me about going to MongoDB and I wasn't, you know, ready to make the decision. He talked a lot about, listen, there's no larger addressable market than the database market. It's well-funded. It's a disruptive play. Like all, you know, he was just really talking to me about why this would be a great decision. And so after talking to VCs and going from company to company, you start to understand what is why they invest in specific companies. And I saw very similar things with MongoDB, DocuSign to MongoDB to Trip Actions. They all have large markets where they have product market fit. Their users love them. They are a disruptive play. You know, I also think if you want to join a company, join one who the major stake in the market was built before the iPhone, because I guarantee the world changed at that point. And the way we interact with software and products as users and the way we care about a user experience, they are definitely legacy if they were born before the iPhone. So pick companies born after the iPhone that have good product market fit and love by consumers. And I think that's a recipe to, to take a market in the future. It's a great marker, uh, an interesting one to look at. And to your point, so much changed there and, and continues to change still in terms of what I think is on my phone versus how I did it before. I want to go deeper into, into an earlier part of your answer there. You mentioned Byron Dieter over at Bessemer. Um, you know, for those who, who aren't familiar with some of those names and Sequoia is another, another large equity fund. When, when you think about getting on their radar, how did you do that? Because, you know, at DocuSign for perspective, you know, you weren't necessarily at the sea level to start. I imagine that you found a way to get that mentorship or raise your hand for someone to take notice. Like, how can someone get on the board's radar when they're at a director or VP level? Yeah. So with Byron, I actually worked at his company. He was a founder of a company called Trigo that got bought by IBM. I think the key is any company you're on, work really hard, deliver results, become someone they want to take with them to other companies. Now, he left that company and joined a VC, which was Bessemer. And so he, you know, when you're at VCs, you're following talent and trying to place them. And so I was fortunate enough that I knew him before he went to the VC. Um, I had done strong work for him and his company and uh, had forged a relationship there you know, following his advice and going to companies that he recommended happened because we work together. So I think you're always, for me, always do strong work, collaborate. He wasn't in marketing, you know, so deliver results um, across the entire organization. You know, as far as how I got on uh, Roloff's radar, I, I was brought in, you know, they were using a company, I think, called True Search uh, that had brought candidates to Dave uh, over at MongoDB, and they had reached out and it was six plus months of discussions before I was ready to, I, I really didn't want to leave DocuSign. Um, I was happy things were going well, um, I, but I did want to move up in my career. And so uh, an opportunity to be a CMO um, was what I was you know, wanting to do in my long-term goals. And so True brought me into it. And then as I met with Dave and he was more so wanting me to join his team, he brought in the VCs to interview me and, and probably sell the opportunity um, more than anything. So I guess my advice is network, whatever company you're at now, 
take the time when we can go have lunch, go have dinner, meet with them, get to know the people because you will work with them throughout your life. I mean, I, ha I have 12 or 13 people on my team that I've worked at various companies over the last 20 years and not all sequential, right? Some people I worked with three companies ago. You work with people over and over and you know who the good ones are. You know who the collaborative ones are, the get results that are continually learning. You want them on your team and you work well together and you'll keep working together. Absolutely. Now, to your point, I've, I've followed people who have worked with you and, and I'm always waiting to see if they're going to make that jump as well. Uh, Ryan's one of them who's great, of course. Yes, yes. So you, you talked about networking there and I, and I want to hit on another way that you've managed to network or, or get to know other businesses and follow trends, which is becoming an advisor. If anyone looks at your LinkedIn, they'll feel like you've you know either job jumped nonstop or you're just working way too much. So help us understand how this became an interest, a hobby, uh, a part of how you do your career journey. Yes. You know, I mean, it's been 11, 12 years since I took my first advisory and it was meant to go. Uh, and it was actually Byron Dieter's advice that got me to do what I did, but they had reached out for me to join an advisory customer advisory board. So not like a formal advisor for options, just we were a customer. I had done, I've joined lots of customer advisory boards and given a lot of feedback on products. And I, I would say I have more of an expertise in MarTech than probably anything else in marketing. And so I got asked to join and I asked them, I said, is this a formal advisory role? And the CMO who I love, Jason wrote back, do you mean like for options? And I wrote back, yes. <laughs> and then I didn't hear anything for a little bit. And he actually went to the CEO and said, hey, she's actually more interested in being an advisor. And so the CEO, Jacob, reached out and said, hey, yeah, actually, we'd like to make you an advisor. And that kicked off my first advisory role. And then other, I put that on my LinkedIn and then others saw that. And also I, you know, I put heavy lift in there, right? I met with the CMO, I met with the sales team, I gave feedback and helped actually advise. And so as you had one, you, you start to get more. Uh, the other thing I did is I did have a lot of inbound when I was at DocuSign, because this was at DocuSign, to go be a CMO and I wasn't ready to be a CMO or leave, or I didn't want that particular CMO opportunity. And I would say, actually, I'm not looking to leave DocuSign, but I would be open to advising. And so I turned a lot of inbound requests to go be a CMO into an advisory role. And so that started to grow over the last decade. And I've now advised over, I don't know, 25 companies. Absolutely. And so a question for you on that, that I think a lot of people are probably just trying to figure out how to advise one company, but let alone, how do you figure out how many you can take on and still handle your daily responsibilities, not just at work, but obviously at home. So what, what's your magic number for active advisory? I mean, I don't think there's a magic number, but I think as we get, as we grow in our career, obviously we become more experienced, we make decisions faster, we see pattern recognition. So could I have done what I'm doing now 10 years ago? No way. I did one advisory for like a year or so. But as you've done them more and more, companies at different stages face the same problems and they need to hire the same type of skill sets and they need to address really the same things. Now, they're always a little bit different because they have different personas that they're selling into and the environment changes, of course, but pattern recognition allows me to give advice a lot faster, to have models available, to um, even on things I've never done, I can just gut and experience together, make allow me to be a better advisor. And you know, I've grown that over 20 years. And so I can take on a lot more because my response, it doesn't take me a lot of time 
to help them solve a problem or to advise. It's almost immediate. And then when you get the same question from five companies, it's really, you, you know, you can become very productive and efficient and be very beneficial to that company. So I, you know, I believe I've been able to do it because of that. And because I'm an operator, I'm often facing the same things that in the market dynamic. So I now I see this playbook in multiple places. And now there's not just my team solving it, I see five other teams solving it. And I can see the results of five other teams. All of a sudden, I have accelerated learning that I can bring back to my operating role. I actually think it makes me a better operator, because I, it's almost like I have a team of 150 solving problems, different companies, but solving problems you know, I'm not doing it during the day during my operating role. I'm doing it early mornings. I'm doing it on the weekends. I'm doing it late at night. I'm taking a lunch break and talking to someone. I cannot disrupt my operating role. I have to deliver and be the best that I can and respect the role I have. But can I at night when I get home, answer an email or send something over or get on the phone or when I'm driving to work or back because I still come into the office? Yes. And so while some people have hobbies, like they go golfing or they watch TV or Netflix. I don't, I don't do that. Like I don't take time golfing or biking or whatever. My hobby is advising. That's something that stimulates my brain and I really enjoy it. Um, and so I don't have those other things that take up time. That's fantastic. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us can relate to it when you frame it in that way. I mean, even I get questions sometimes, how do I have time for a weekly podcast? How do I have time to, to meet that guest and everything that comes with that? But I, I tell people that, that taking this time is a way for me to refresh my thoughts, to, to get other perspectives. And that, yeah. you said, that, that stimulates my mind. It brings ideas back to my team that aren't my ideas, but I can share. So I think a lot of us, you know, it's a, about prioritizing and, and getting more efficient, as you said. Yes. Now, you hit on, on ideas that you're able to, to bring, playbooks you're able to bring. We're going to take a short break here on the marketer's journey. We'll be back. We'll talk about how you're charting that buyer's journey over at TripActions. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. So a lot of you are hearing Megan talk about these amazing opportunities she's had to be an advisor and trying to figure out how do I do this? Now, let me tell you a little bit about myself. You know, I did not necessarily have in the early parts of my career the opportunity to pick who I'd advise for or people coming to me asking for advice. So the question is, how do we make that part of our career journey? And I think what you can do is really take a look at where you become an expert. Now, it could be the industry in which you've been working and the knowledge you've gained there and looking inside of your community at different accelerators, different businesses being started and reaching out to the founders 
giving your suggestions, you know, just sending an email with ideas that you come across when you come to their site and seeing if you can start building that type of rapport. You'd be amazed at how many people want the perspective of people who get their industry. And I think there's this opportunity for all of us to find an opportunity, as we always say, to be mentored, but also be a mentor. So Megan, you shared with us how you pick your winners, and I don't think anyone could have known what this past year would have meant for the businesses that we're a part of. And being in the travel industry, obviously there was impact. How has your team rallied to keep morale up, to keep customers engaged, and to look to the long run? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I look back to March when the crisis really became front and center. Uh, you know, we're a usage-based model and people stopped traveling. And in fact, costs went up a little bit because we had to get everyone home. Uh, that was around the world and canceled trips. So our agents were very busy supporting everyone. Uh, and so we quickly realized there was four things we had to focus on. Uh, the first thing are customers. So get them home. What information do they need? What reports could we build? You know, they were learning about COVID as were we, and they were learning about all the travel restrictions. So we did a lot of work in our product to support customers. The second thing was product market fit for now and in the future. And so we had launched a product liquid uh, that was around payments and corporate spend that was still going on. So we had to, we wanted to figure out what do we need to do for customers in that area? The third thing was cost control, right? No revenue coming in. You need to bring your burn down very quickly. Uh, and so we were focused on what, what did we need to do? Um, from a marketing standpoint, events went away, right? So 40% of the budget got cut immediately just by nature of events were gone. But we also lost some headcount in that, um, that I had, we had to go through a layoff. Uh, and then the fourth thing we focus on was employees. Uh, certainly employees that had been laid off, but employees that were with the company. You know, we we were going through a crisis. They were all of a sudden working from home in a pandemic at a travel company. So making sure that, you know, we gave them focus and goals and motivation and empathy for the situation. A lot of people were homeschooling. You know, I have three kids, definitely understood that. Um, and so the company focused really on those four things um, to get us through the last year and certainly we didn't know in March that a vaccine would be out within a year. Um, you know, that could have been a three or four year thing and journey. And so the best thing for travel was this vaccine coming out, now being rolled out. We're going to get better at that. And we're starting to see travel come back. We're at about 20% levels. That's, that's great. Very promising. Yes. So let me go back to your first point, because I, I think it's an interesting one for whoever's listening to this in whatever industry they're in. And, and you talked about this mindset of having to rethink what your products needed to be for the customer in this moment of change. And there was a great study I read this past summer. It was by PwC and it was a survey of CFOs and the, the top things that were going to get their businesses on track were actually changing products and go to market. So the, the lens I'm interested in is what is the role of not just the CMO, but the marketing org when we think about changing products as we've had to do so drastically. I mean, you know, we all know that there's a debate where does product marketing sit? Sometimes it's under product, sometimes it's under marketing. How has this past year shifted your view on that, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think both are very important to connect with the customer. So our product team was on with our customers 
getting insight, feedback, what do they need right now in this moment? We had a, a weekly cab that was going on and every single cab member joined and was giving us feedback on what they needed. Um, we started office hours uh, every week we, with our CFOs, with procurement, with travel managers, soliciting feedback, what do you need? And we took that and the engineering team was building. And my role as a CMO was, okay, we're about to launch a bunch of products out for our customers. I need to enable the sales team, the CSM team. Uh, we need to change our, our decks. We were all about the best experience in business travel. Nobody's having a good experience. Now we're about traveler safety and cost control. All things we had, but we needed to bump up and put the focus on that because that's what our customers needed in this new environment. Absolutely. What about, you know, I always have a passion around content and content strategy. How did you change, you know, to be, as you said, empathetic to what everyone was going through? How did you change the tone of your content? And, and how did that weave even into some of your demand campaigns ultimately? Yes. So it was a five-day period of, I don't know, 14-hour days. We audited every single piece of content we had and rewrote it to the new messaging brief around traveler safety and cost control. And so we redid all the, the website. We redid the pitch, the decks for sales team, meeting one, meeting two. We redid all the enablement content for CSMs. We rewrote all our outreach emails. We rewrote all our social media, all our platforms, you name it. It was a five-day crazy effort of basically redoing everything we'd done in the past year and then getting it on the site and distributed because we couldn't afford a tone that didn't match the situation that was going on. And the team, I'm very proud of the team coming together because at the same time, the team had been downsized from 60 to 30. Wow. So if you think about that, we had taken a huge cut and then we needed to um, really pivot quickly and get a whole new thing of messaging out there. And it was just, we had war rooms set up, we had focus, we audited, we assigned owners and we went and everyone was just running hard. And we knew we were going to make some mistakes, but we would go back and fix it. And we had to enable our SDRs that were doing outreach to outreach differently. Like all of that um, was a pretty big effort. Can you speak openly about, as you said, you, you had to make that hard decision uh, with a riff, and then you've got the employee morale is that fourth target to keep the business on track. Did all this work and all this opportunity to reinvent the company kind of help on that front? Well, we were very focused, right? There's nothing like a crisis to focus you or or great pressure makes diamonds. I mean, the team, we had to be very specific on what we were prioritizing and what had to get done and who owned it. And then we, we just met a lot. I did a lot of skip levels. I checked in on people. I had every, every morning I met with my leads every night. I met with the entire team and checked with them. It was just to check in. How are we doing? Where are we at? What do you need? And so we met more as a team than ever before. Of course, this was on zoom. And then I added in um, weekly walks on zoom. So walk around your house, walk around your backyard, your, you know, your deck, whatever, wherever you could walk the block. Um, and it wasn't about work. It was just, let's check in. Let's get, if you could get fresh air and vitamin D, get that. Um, and so we needed to, to do that kind of stuff. And then we added happy hours over zoom every week to balance um, kind of like hard work and, and just teaming and collaboration. But yeah, we, it just over communicate, have very clear goals and check in a lot. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love, I, I did the exact same thing with the walks. Mine, mine were branded walk and talks because the idea was you couldn't have slides. You yeah. couldn't be on your couch. Right? Smart, yeah. it, it was, it was no zoom, no screen, just like use your phone for that, 
that last function we think about it. I, you know, one area that, that's maybe more in the weeds, but I'm curious with your business model. You know, trip actions had, had grown tremendously in the last number of years, is my understanding. And, and it's not just, you know, a U.S. focus for you. It's, that's right. It's a global focus. So as your team was, was figuring out this adapted messaging, how did you take a variated messaging depending on the region? You know, as travel, I'm sure, was changing for every region in different ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the core commonalities are traveler safety around the world and cost control. So, I mean, at the highest level, it was a global message. The other thing we we're doing, and we did last year, is we went up market to enterprise. We landed a lot more larger businesses like AECOM, uh, Crate and Barrel, uh, Okta, several several large businesses, and we added 700 customers last year. So we grew 75% in the last year. For us, you know, the first year I joined, we had grown 7x. The second year we grew 5x. So 75%, while great from a B2B SaaS standpoint, was nothing like we had grown the two prior years. But we landed much larger customers in that time frame, and we were going up market in a pandemic. So the team, you know, we're very proud of actually that we continue to take market share in a very tough environment. And that those are global clients. As you go into enterprise, they just naturally have global footprint, global offices around the world that need support and travel and all of that. Also, the customers that joined us had a need to travel. So we saw a shift in industry. Uh, we saw retail and manufacturing and healthcare clients more and more come to us because they have to check on stores. They have to check on their plants. They have to, you know, they are, you know, healthcare, you're, you're delivering around. Um, and the coastal cities might not have traveled as much. They still had their CEOs traveling. They had their sales leaders traveling. It's hard to close a million dollar deal over Zoom, at least at the pace and scale that you want. You know, relationships are what, what really accelerate, I think, deals. And and building relationships over Zoom, you can do it. And obviously we've been doing it, but not as fast and as well as you can when you're in person and you're having dinner with someone or lunch with someone, you get to know them. Absolutely. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the more you describe the change that we've all had to go through, I, I think in the long run, it also speaks to the importance of a, of a partner like your business and what it stands for. And I'm sure this past year has been a, a tricky balance, as we said, being empathetic, but also yeah. making people realize that in the long run, this is why you need a partner like yeah. us. And I've spoken to a lot of marketers who have had to walk that fine line of realizing their business is now more important than ever. Companies like 3M, who we get to work with, who are in the PPE space, Medtronic in the ventilation space. And it's, you know, there's now a need for these products. We need to be there for our customers. We need to educate them, but we can't do that hard sell. We need them to, to almost self-realize the value of, of these products. Absolutely. Megan, this has been great. We're going to keep you around for, for just a couple minutes and get to know how you're taking breaks amid all this. We'll be right back after a short break here. So you hear Megan talk about pulling her team together around this crisis, this reality of losing headcount, 
having to pull together and really being focused. And I think that's the key in a marketing leader. You know, marketing never goes as planned. I mean, this past year, without a doubt, has really been an overemphasis of that idea. But for many of us, as soon as we feel we have momentum, we get hit with some sort of a speed bump or some sort of hiccup along the way. You know, I can think this past year, we had you know a fair amount of team turnover on our marketing team. And in those moments, you can see the looks of people's faces, even on Zoom, as we look around and we see people feeling a little bit depleted. But that's our opportunity to paint how this is going to change, how we can rally, how people can step up in those moments, and how a new direction can actually be more motivating than what we may have had going to begin with. I think that's what you hear from Megan. It's what you hear from really strong marketing leaders. So those who listen to this podcast on a regular basis know I used to always finish with a fun question around where is your next journey on the personal side? Where are you going to take a trip? But no one's been traveling, but things are changing, right? You know, we've, we've got vaccines now and we've got companies that are shaping how it's safe to do so. So Megan, I know you're not scared to travel in the upcoming year. I know you're going to be safe, but where are you hoping to get to? Yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I've got three different trips booked right now. Um, one, we've got spring break coming up. So with the three kids, going to go to Hawaii. Uh, so we have that planned. I plan to go visit our office in London in June. I have that trip booked. In August, I plan to take a family vacation to Rome. So uh, that is also booked. I mean, prices for travel are inexpensive right now. I, I think that if you, I believe, will fully have the vaccine available to anyone who wants it by June. And that if you want to take a, a trip of your life at not a lot, uh, not too expensive trip, now's the time to book it. it cancellation policies are gracious. Absolutely. So I, I say book July, August. Uh, I, I spoke to someone last week and they said, you can go to anywhere as, as though it's Thailand right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the mentality of that was always the, you know, you're going to get so much bang for your buck. You go to it's Thailand. true. Take that dream vacation. <laughs> Everywhere is Thailand. So, you know, we the, call it revenge travel. I heard that term revenge travel, COVID revenge. All of us are going to be out there traveling. Amazing. Just last question on that. When you are on those breaks, when you're on that, how do you break from work? You know, how do you go on that family vacation from Rome and ideally not have to connect as much as you're used to? Yeah. You know, I don't like to totally disconnect. I'll admit I will always check in, but I won't, I won't spend the day doing it. You know, I'll, I wake up early, so I'll check in, but then, you know, I'm focused on my kids and we're exploring, we're learning, we're going to go to museums. We're going to experience, you know, Europe. You know, I think it's just by nature of being out there and exploring and, and being with your kids. It, it would be hard to not focus on them and that environment, especially when you're not at your house, you're out, you know, you're out exploring. So, you know, I, I only focus on that early morning and then maybe right after they go to sleep at night, I'll check back in when I'm on vacation. Amazing. Well, Megan, this has been great. So much great information shared. I'm sure everyone tuning in has learned a lot. And if this is the first marketer's journey you've heard, tune in again. We've got tons of CMOs who have gone to this level. Everyone's journey is a little bit different and I hope one day we'll learn yours. Until next time, big thanks to Megan Eisenberg for joining us on this episode. 
You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, at uberflip.com slash podcast, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.